Rosie. Um, thank you. Good evening. My name is Rosie, and I am an alcoholic. I would, I would like to thank Damien for inviting me to come and share with you guys tonight. Uh, Bernadette for writing with me. I blinked, and we were already in San Diego. Thank you. Um, I'd like to thank Robert, <clears throat> our 10-minute speaker. Somewhere he left. I haven't even started talking and he left. That's not right. Cross him off that list, Damien. <clears throat> My sobriety date is July 5th of 1992. My home group is the Big Book Group of Bellflower, California, and my sponsor's name is Sharon. For those three things, I am truly grateful to you tonight. I'd like to uh, congratulate the people, the 90-day chipper, and the birthdays. Happy birthday. Um, my first meeting where I stood up new for the first time was the Downey Thursday night meeting where I still attend, <clears throat> and it was a birthday night. And there was somebody there taking a one-year cake. And I remember it like if it was yesterday. I sat in that meeting and I'm thinking, there's no way in hell that I would ever, ever stay sober for 365 days. I mean, ever. I could not even wrap my head around 365 days. And, and I knew that that was my reality. And, and I'm here to tell you that July 5th of 92 is, is my only sobriety date. And not because I'm a great member of AA or anything else, but it's only but for the grace of God. Because I got to tell you that when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was not even alcoholic. I had no idea what alcoholism was. I didn't know that I was going to go start crazy sober. I didn't know that everything that I did in my life was about the drinking. In my family, I'm the youngest of seven. I'm, we're Latinos. I was born in Nicaragua and... Uh, we have parties when people get fired, when people get promotions, <laughs> when somebody dies, when somebody gets married, you know, when somebody has a kid, when somebody loses a kid, when somebody goes to jail. I mean, we drink. <clears throat> it's, it's not even a matter of, it, it, it's, we drink. And so it was very common. And, um, and, and I never stopped to think what alcohol was doing to me. Not once. And I don't know about you guys, but, I, I would get in trouble, you know, uh, blackouts and drinking and in school. and But I never really thought about drinking being the cause of all my problems. I, I never thought that. I, I loved alcohol. I am one alcoholic that I love the taste of alcohol. You know, some people we hear that, oh, I didn't like the taste, but I drank it anyway because for the effect. I like the taste of alcohol. I mean, I like strong drinks. I like the, the feeling from here to here. And then, you know, and it's, I, I really, um, yes, I like the effect, but I liked everything that goes with alcohol. You know, the, the ceremonial drinking, I did a lot of ceremonial drinking, you know, like to get the right kind of glasses, the right kind of shot glasses, you know, the, the right kind of tequila with the warm, because we were going to eat the warm today, and, you know, we, we had a drink before going out, and drink before the drinking, and, and drinking in the bar, and having it in the car, and invite a couple of people in the parking lot to have a drink from the trunk, and, you know, I, I love... 
all of that stuff that went around with the drinking. I'm a bar drinker. I'm not a stay-home drinker. I'm not a closet drinker. I, you know, I, I go places when I drink, you know, and I like nightclubs and I like the strobe lights. And, you know, I, I kind of felt that the moment that I walked into the nightclub, you guys would stop doing what you were doing and, you know, and here I come. <clears throat> I don't know where I had that from, but that's how I felt. I felt that I was it. And um, I love hanging out in bathrooms. You know, I I don't know who does that. Uh, you know, I, I walked into this bathroom, and it's kind of pretty and long. You know, I used to get three or four of my girlfriends and hang out in the bathroom, in nightclubs. I mean, how gross is who Who does that? You know, and, and we'd be doing all kinds of stuff. You know, I, I heard a speaker Thursday night said something that I just thought it was funny, you know, that, you know, you guys call it outside issues, but in my time we called it drugs. You know, we were doing drugs in bathroom and, you know, and it, it's the truth. And, um, and so it went. At the age of, uh, I started drinking at the age of 16. On my way to high school, my friend Alex, who, who died three years after high school from an overdose, he was sitting next to me and I didn't start drinking because my life was miserable or because I wanted to check out or because I drank because my friend Alex had a bottle of vodka next to me. He passed it down and it was 7.30 in the morning and I took one pool out of that bottle and, you know, and I imagine it didn't taste that good, but I liked the effect and the warm and, you know, I remember drinking to excess. I was a puker in my early drinking. You know, you got to hang on in there, right? You know, go, go through the puking, you know, part and, you know, just chill because it gets better. And, uh... <laughs> But when I was young and in high school, I used to puke a lot, you know, and I used to have friends. It seems to me like I've had friends all of my life that were either cleaning me up, getting me home on time, getting me out of trouble. You know, to me, looking back through inventories, I find that I've had people around me all the time. I remember being passed out in bathrooms in high school and my friends from the bus, I was bussed into high school. And and that started, I'm, I, you know, if I jump around and I leave a story untold and you want to know about it, call me, okay? <laughs> I come from a poor background. I was smuggled into the States at an early age, and I did not know how to speak English. And my mother house kept uh, in El Segundo, and, and uh, so I was bussed into the valley. And, and we were living in downtown L.A. in a one-studio apartment where my mom babysat 12 kids at any given time. And I can tell you that I was ashamed. I, I, I was ashamed of my mom. I was ashamed of where I lived. And uh, and I remember that I started working at the age of 14, and I've been working ever since. I, I did not know that I could not, not go to work. I wish I did. You know, people here, like, don't work. You know, they go to rehab and they go, you know, uh, the mission. I, I wish I would have known that I could, like, not go to work. You know, but I've been working since I'm 14 years old. Now I show up to work drunk. I show up sick. I, one time I showed up to work with clusters of pizza on my sweater because <laughs> gramagne and pizza don't mix well. And, you know, and, and I remember having co-worker. Come on, don't give me the ah. <clears throat> I imagine there's no peers in the house either, right? Jeez. Um, I'm up here. You know, here I am trying to get sober, you know, in AA, and I was embarrassed to go to AA, right? I would not go to that one meeting that was across the street, the Guardsman, a bar in Downey that I used to drink and hang out because I was afraid somebody may see me going into a meeting of AA. But I can pee in your front lawn and your back porch any given day, and I never thought of being embarrassed in my life, you know? Um <clears throat> 
So let me go back. I'm going to be coming in and out. I can see it. Um, and so here I am living with my mom, and I'm being bused to Reseda High. I went to, the, to high school in the Valley, and, um, and I remember that my friend Alex had the bottle, and uh, I remember in my early drinking, just drinking to excess and getting sick and getting cleaned up and doing it again. Uh, I am the one that stood in the outside of the liquor stores waiting for somebody to buy me a bottle of, of vodka because that's what I started drinking with, and I would have it in the locker, and I would share it with my friends, first period, typing class, we were having our screwdrivers, and um, <clears throat> and I don't get caught in high school. You know, I'm passed out in classes, and I don't remember teachers coming over to talk to me or getting me in trouble. I've always had this thing for white men, you know, and uh, I, I love my weddles, you know, and... <laughs> I married one in sobriety, and um, and I remember falling in love with my counselor, Mr. Anderson, in high school. And um, he must have been a hundred years old, Peggy Rose, right? You know, I mean, high school. He was old, and um, probably my age now. <laughs> Scary. I woke up. Boom! I'm fifty. Well, how did that happen? Jesus. Anyway, that's a different meeting. And. Um, <clears throat> That's for my women's meeting. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and here I am, and and, uh, and I am drinking, and, and I'm getting sent to the office all the time because, I, you know, I like this Mr. Anderson guy. I stole a picture from the office one time, and I still have that picture. You know, it's it's that one picture that's in the, you know, principal's office. And, and, um, and I would send him, you know, flowers for Valentine's, you know, from your secret admirer. I can tell you today that looking back, I graduated that high school on time, not because of my credits. I can tell you that I think Mr. Anderson wanted me out of there. I, I really believe it. Any little excuse to be right there on his face, you know, and then I would steal the yellow slips to go take my friends out of class, and I'm a big ditcher. I, I always, you know, cut class and went drinking in the bowling alley, and I've always hung around with older people, and I found nightclubs early on. I've always had a fake ID on me. And and uh, at the age of 19, I have an overdose. And, and I remember, you know, thinking of my God, because I've always had a God. You know, we, we most Latinos are Catholics. I'm a, I'm a Catholic. You know, we go to church once a year on Palm Sunday, you know. We got to get that palm and put behind the door to keep the evil out. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember I, I went to my God and I, you know, I prayed to God because I was sick. You know, after coming to and, and being passed out for a couple hours and nobody called 911 or took me to the ER, I remember coming to and I was deathly sick. And I remember promising that God that if he got me into college, because I'm illegal in the country, I don't have a social security number to go to college, that I would quit doing drugs forever. And, uh, and sure enough, my mom went down to MacArthur Park, scored a social security number for five bucks. <laughs> And I ended up going to L.A. Trade Tech for five years to get a two-year degree. And even then, I paid my niece to take my algebra final. Um, I got kicked out of my business law because I showed up to the final completely intoxicated. And, and it was a Wednesday night. And I remember my days because my car, I had a car that drove me to different nightclubs different nights. You know, when you guys had one of those two that just drove automatically, you know. Wednesday night, we would go to the Quiet Cannon. On Thursdays, we would go to the Grand. On Fridays, we went to the Mayan and down town LA and on Sunday nights we went to Stephen's Steakhouse. So I know this was a Wednesday night because I ended up in, you know, at the Quiet Cannon. And so, and I don't think about being kicked out of class. I don't think it's a big deal. I'm not remorseful. I'm not, you know, it, it was like, 
any other day for me, you know, just like that one time that I remember coming to and I had left the club at 11 o'clock at night and it was a Wednesday because I was, I left Quiet Canyon and I ended up in Torrance and, and it was 3.20 in the morning and my car was surrounded with high weeds, you know, just, I, I, I didn't know where the hell I was and I came to to that and I remember being scared. I remember trying to make, you know, taking the car to the road and I never talked about it. I never told a soul. I didn't think, God, I have a problem. I have to watch it. I don't have that experience, you know, of, you know, thinking about the way that I was drinking. And I just moved on. And, and um, I can tell you that my blackout started when I quit doing drugs. <laughs> you know, I drank like a fish, like a fish. Between 19 years old and 25 years old, I drank like a fish. I went out about three or four nights a week. I would get home about 1 o'clock in the morning. I would get up at 5, go to the gym, because if you go to the gym, you're good. I would go to work, because I've always worked. And I would go by my mom's house, because I'm a good daughter. And I would, what I was doing at mom's house was take, was eating and taking a nap is what I was doing. And then I'd go to college. I'd go to the club, get home at 1 in the morning, get up at 5, go to the gym, sweat it out, sometimes in the sauna, go to work, go by my mom's house, you know, go to the college. And that's how it was for me for six years. And um, <clears throat> I can tell you that for the newcomers, I like to welcome the newcomers, those who identified and those who didn't identify. I don't care if you didn't identify. If you're in this meeting and you are suffering from alcoholism, if you have alcoholism, you're going to get to hear something here tonight that you're going to take with you and maybe motivate you to go to another meeting. At least that's my hope for you today. I'd like to welcome those who identified and those who didn't because I am past that you need to be here and you need to be alcoholic and all of that. You know what? If you're not alcoholic, don't even worry about it. <laughs> you know, take out your phone and start texting or go on Facebook or do Candy Crush or whatever the hell it is that you guys are doing. <laughs> Don't worry about it. If you're not alcoholic, whatever I said up here doesn't mean anything. You know, I know for me, I was alcoholic when I got to you. I didn't know that I was. And when I heard a chunk of my story being told, my life has not been the same since. And so here I am. Let me go back again. Um, I'm 25 years old, and I still hang around with the same crowd in the same places. You know, and there's nothing more as newcomer. I was not sober. I was drinking. Um, but I hung around with the same, you know, drug dealing people and the people that was doing all the other stuff. And, uh, and I can tell you here that, that I am a byproduct of what I'm around. And I don't know if this is your story, but I am 21 years sober today. And I can tell you that if I, if I hang around with Puerto Ricans for a, a couple hours, I'm like, oye, man, oye, oye, chica, me tu te va a comer nuevo. You know, I start with the little, you know, going around and, you know, and, and all of my little, you know, mud. I, and I don't know how that happens, you know, and if I'm with the Cubans, the same thing. And I'm 25 years old and I am hanging around with the same people and, and, you know, that stuff got passed around one more time and I picked up. And I'm here to tell you that um, it, it is the worst thing. And, and I know for me, looking back, I, I still hang around with the same people, same playgrounds. If you're here, you're new, and you're still continuing to, and you're insisting on having and keeping those friends because they're your besties, you know, I am here to tell you that it doesn't work. You know, sooner or later, I had to redefine what what best friends were because out of in my inventory, none of those people that I thought were my besties had my back. I mean, these were the girlfriends that I had. You know, if that guy was really ugly, which this is a true story, you know, there's this guy, yeah, ugly, okay? <laughs> guy could not even dance, okay? Uh, and, and, you know, and she's pushing me to go with him because he's got the goods. She was my besties, okay? So, you know, I had to really redefine what excitement and love and all of that stuff because I came in here full of old ideas. All I had was 
everything that I've been taught. Everything. That's the only thing I had. I had nothing else. And, and I, and I had to open up to a sponsor in order to be helped. Because if I am sitting in this room and I'm not letting anybody in, guess what? I am walking around with the same old ideas. And I'm, and I'm here to tell you that I am fooled. I'm filled with old ideas. It's taken everything that I do in AA for 21 years to kind of let go of a little bit of the old ideas. And I don't know if it gets better. Okay, for me, at 21 years, I can tell you that I feel sometimes that I'm, I'm going backwards. You know, I, I, I get complacent in my program. I get complacent in my honesty with my sponsor and, and all hell breaks loose. You know, and, and, and one more time. And the only thing that I got going for myself is that I have regular meetings in my agenda and my calendar. I sponsor a lot of women that it's not easy for me to just skip a meeting. I have to, you know, let them know, you know, what, what the hell is going on so it's easier for me to show up. That is my biggest commitment in Alcoholics Anonymous is the women that I sponsor. It's not the coffee and it's not the treasury and it's not the phone list, but it's the ladies that I sponsor that are watching me like a hawk. Cause I'm a people watcher also. You know, you can tell me all you want and you can sound as pretty as you want it to sound, but I want to see how you live. You know, because I know for me it's the easiest thing to come to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, drive a couple hours, and work the room. I know how to work the room really good. I know how to welcome people, and I know how to smile and give you warm hugs and and wish you the very best. I know how to do that good. You know, but the moment that I step away, you know, my sponsor had me take down my one-at-a-time, one-day-at-a-time sticker from my car because I was vicious. Here I am running late everywhere. You know, I just, I, I wait until the last minute to get ready. You were supposed to be at my house at 4. I got up at 3.15 you know, to shower and get ready and go, you know. Uh, I, I always wait for the last minute. I don't know what that's about. You know, my sponsor thinks it's power and control, a false sense of power and control because, you know, I don't have any of that stuff, and we know that. But I can tell you that, you know, on the road I was raging. You know, I didn't care how sweet the old lady looked. I mean, I'm just cussing the hell out. You know, people should not drive, you know. And, and I found out I was racist. All on the road. You know, and I told on myself, and my sponsor had me take all of that little stickers I had in my car, you know, simple, uh, what is that, simple, easy does it, and, you know, oh, my God. So I took them down, and, and, and I started to kind of get to places on time, you know, to try not to, you know, tell you to get out of my way. And, um, you know, then then at home, I want to see how you live at home. You know, yeah, we don't cuss behind the podium because we're we're an example. You know, we're representing, you know, a good program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But am I turning around and doing that at home? You know, am I am I fighting and arguing and, and demeaning people? You know, if I'm a boss at work, am I treating the people that work under me fairly with respect? You know, or, or am I taking all of that false sense of power into my work and I'm going to let you have it because I've had a bad night? You know, so I, I like to, you know, look at myself and, and I like to practice principles in all of my affairs because this is, that, this, that's where I live. I don't live here. I don't live for two hours a day when I'm in a meeting of AA. I live out there. You know, and if I'm not getting along out there, I can tell you that I can, for me, a drink, I think drink will still work for me. I'm not one of those alcoholics that think that drink quit working for me. You know, I, I like to check out. If I'm checked out, I don't care about anything that I'm doing or anything that's going on around me. And so, you know, that's just a side note. Boy, I got off on that one. <laughs> Come back. 
So uh, here I am, and uh, I, I picked up again. And I can tell you that from the ages of 25 years old to 29, I lived hell. And I like to call it my bottom because it's the bottom. It's still my only bottom that I've had, the one that I looked down. Um, I started to live in in a place in my life. You know, I, I haven't been to jail yet. I haven't been to institutions yet. And I always put that yet in there because I know that I am capable of picking up a drink again. I am not those alcoholics that have been here for a while that, that think that I will not, that I'm exempt you know, from picking up a drink, I'm, I'm just a, you know, I, and I believe that to the core of my being. I, I never, would never say I quit drinking for the rest of my life, you know, because it takes work. It takes one day at a time. I can't stay sober on the steps that I took last year. And, and this is, this is right. When we take the people through the steps, we take the steps. You know, there's a lot of things that we talked about today that, that make me think about what it is that I'm doing. You know, and how am I behaving and, you know, all of that stuff. So this is the beautiful thing about taking people through the steps. Um, here I am. I met up with that ugly guy that I told you guys about, the only ugly guy I've been with. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> he was married. He was not supposed to be married after, but he was always married. Uh, you know the story. Uh, he was the drug dealer guy. And... Um, I became a loser. I lost a good job, and I went to work at a place that I like to call the Dungeon in downtown L.A. It's still there. It's on 8th and Hill. And uh, the carpet stuck to your feet when you walked around. The fine smell of pine soul was in the air, you know. And and I worked there, and it was a hostess ballroom dancing place where I worked, and I answered the phone all day long to hire the women that worked there at night. And and um, and it was an ugly place to be, and, and that's where I ended up, and that's where I hit bottom. And I'd been working there for about three years. And, and by this time, you guys, I'm drinking every day. By this time, I'm drinking in the morning, not just for the morning drink, but the, just to get out. It's not even to shower, because I wasn't even bathing. I was wearing a lot of perfume. Hey, I wore perfume. <laughs> some, some of you guys ain't wearing anything, okay? Um, and... Um, and I and I just remember trying to make it to work. Sometimes I would go to bed at six in the morning, and I had to get up at nine in the morning to be work at ten, at ten in the morning. And and I remember many mornings trying to drive, you know, with one eye, you know, open and trying to focus. And I couldn't turn to the mirrors because if you turn, you lost. And and it wasn't once in a while. I mean, it, it was. These were the mornings where I had to stand. I lived across the street, two liquor stores, on on Florence and Old River School, and and I remember, you know, six o'clock in the morning. You know, I'd, I'd put on whatever it is that I was wearing for the day and my bright red lipstick. You know, six o'clock in the morning. I thought that if I had my red lipstick on, you guys couldn't see that I've been up for days that I've been drinking that I'm drunk. And I don't know if you guys had your favorite moo moo or your favorite, you know, uh, get up, but for me it was red lipstick. I don't know. I just, uh, and I remember that the, the thing that said walk, it said walk, walk. And I remember wanting to walk. The liquor store was across the street and I needed to get there and I couldn't physically move. You know, and it didn't happen once or twice, but this is, it happened a lot, you know, where I, I could no longer cross the street, you know, and, um, and I lived that way, and and um, and it was he he would go back to the wife, and we'd get into fights, and I'd sell some drugs and buy them off the same people I sold them to. I mean, can you imagine? 
Um, and I live this way, and, and it's no longer the bars and the nightclubs. It's, there's a lot of lonely drinking. There's a lot of, you know, drinking on the floor. There's a lot of, you know, curtains drawn and a lot of fear of going and being amongst my family because, you know, once I took a drink, I didn't know how I was going to react to it. And I, it's a big family I have, and there's always parties. Somebody's always having a kid. Somebody's birthday. I mean, my God, I've got like about 20, you know, nieces and nephews, and there's always something going on. And, and I could no longer show up, you know, and, and I would see my mom briefly because the moment that I had a beer with them, I didn't know where I was going to end up or what, what my demeanor was going to be. And, and I was afraid of giving my mom that headache. You know, I've seen my mom suffer, not only with me, but with all my siblings. You know, my mom used to beg me for, for the keys to the car. You know, every time that I was drinking around, she said, Mija, please don't drive. You know? And she would try to take the keys. And I'm like, Mom, I've only had a beer. You know, that was only my only cry. And she's lived with two other alcoholics before. You know, my dad was an alcoholic. And he died at the age of 48 as a direct result of alcoholism. And I have a couple of siblings that should be in the room, but they're not by choice. And um, and I know that I, I didn't want my mom to see me, what I had become. Because I had become... Um, you know the desperation of the drunk. <laughs> you know the desperation of the addict. You know, and and um, and I can tell you that it was absolutely um, uh, disgusting, is what it was. And I felt that you guys can see that this that what I had become. I, I thought that I had like blinking lights of you know drunk, you know addict, loser. You know, I I just thought that you guys can can see that. And um, and so I made my visits a lot shorter and shorter all the time. And what happened to me at uh, November of 1991, my brother came to drink with me. He had just gotten back from Nicaragua, and he brought back some rum. And I had just gotten back from Ecuador, and I brought back some homemade sugarcane thick syrupy alcohol. I don't know if you guys have ever had any homemade, you know, sugar cane, but man, it's the best thing that there is. You know, I, I share about it and my mouth begins to water instantaneously. You know, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful high. It's a beautiful buzz. I, I, and um and him and I started drinking and and my brother's a lot bigger than I and at 9:30 at night and it was a Sunday night cuz I ended up at Stephen's Steakhouse and it was 9:30 when he got up to leave and I didn't think anything about him drinking you know my mom always said that he drove better when drinking you know when we went camping in that beautiful $45,000 van he had my mom would have a a cooler with beer next to him cuz the moment that he started nodding out my mom would say hey give Mario another beer he's nodding out you know and this is a true story. You know, this is how ignorant we were about, you know, the, the illness of alcoholism. And and um, he left, he took off, and he totaled the van that night. My brother ended up hitting, hitting the center divider and uh, lost the directional and hit the wall on the right, hit the left side again, and ended up on the right without hitting anybody. And he went to jail, and he got sentenced to go to AA. And this is what happened that November of 1991. My brother doesn't get sober that Christmas or that New Year's Eve. And I think his sobriety day to somewhere in February, and uh, and I remember he starts calling me at that loser job that I had answering phones. He would go to his morning meeting, attitude adjustment, you know, all mornings meetings are attitude adjustment. <laughs> okay. And uh, and so he would call me and tell me about you, and, you know, he, he calls me up the first time, the second time, and he's telling me, you know, these people are crazy. You know, this alcoholics, man, I don't belong there. They're lying, you know, and and uh, he says, I'm, I'm looking for somebody to pay to, you know, sign my court card for me. 
are you interested? You know, and, and I'm like, I don't, I had no idea what he was talking about, but my brother tells the story because I don't remember talking to him about this, but he tells the story that I told him that he always said he was the alcoholic in my family and that I had heard Alcoholics Anonymous worked and that he should go back and give it a try. He says, I told him this. I don't have any reason to think why I would say something like that, you know, but he says, I told him this and he went back to you guys and after the third meeting you had him. My brother became your biggest cheerleader, man. He could not stop talking about A, 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 you know, and then God, 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 God. And it was like, you know, we're Catholics, but we don't talk about God out loud. You know what I mean? It's like, we don't thank God or, you know, thank, you know, we don't talk about God out loud, you know, and, and this guy was talking so much about God, we started calling him Brother Mario, you know, and he'd come in through one, one door and all, we're all girls, by the way, except for my brother, and we're all, you know, giggle and making fun of him, you know, here he comes again, and, you know, but he had my ear every morning after his morning meeting. He would call me up and tell me all about you, and he would tell me up about why he drank and how my dad died and all of the drinking he had done and all the feelings behind the drinking and the blackouts and he's just started you know he he 12-stepped me into AA he had no idea he was 12-stepping me he was just you know puking you know typical newcomer you ask him how they're doing and two hours later they come up for air <laughs> and then you know that's what he was doing and and um God bless his heart because I heard the music of the heart is what you guys talk about here. And I heard him and I identified and I wanted to tell him how I was drinking. I wanted to tell him that I was drinking in the morning and I wanted to tell him who I was with. And the words couldn't come out because I got this one. You know, I've always been self-sufficient and self-supporting in my life. And I have been brought up in a family where we don't air out our dirty laundry and we don't tell people about our problems. And and I wasn't going to tell my brother they're always thinking good of me because I'm MIA, right? I'm going to college. They had no idea how I went to college. And, you know, and, and it was the, the pride. And I could not tell my brother anything. And my brother took a trip. And before he did, he says, you know, there have English meetings of AA in Downey. And I said, really? And he goes, he goes, I'm pretty sure you're going to love AA. You ought to just go check it out. You you may not be alcoholic, but just go. You're going to love AA. And I'm like, you know, this guy came around and gave all the siblings big books. Passed them out like candy. <laughs> and I remember that. And, you know, he goes, what you do is you want to go to the meeting and look for the literature table and find a directory. You know, and I like to thank the people that came in here really early to set up the room and make sure that we had literatures and CDs out because when this alcoholic that did not know that I was alcoholic came into the Tuesday night second chance meeting in Downey looking for a directory. The literature person was right at the table, and she gave me one, and I looked around, and I gave her $5 because I thought you poor people needed the money. <clears throat> it was sometime in July, and I was wearing my black high-thigh boots, my little mini skirt, and my little tube top. I have no neck because I'm bloated, 170 pounds, okay? I, I'm drinking everything because I like my hard liquor, but I'm drinking it beer back. I'm drinking beer 24 hours. And so I am bloated. I have no toenails due to malnutrition, and that's a vision for you, I assure you. <laughs> I, and, and I think this was before the, the acrylics and all of the stuff that you can put in now because... It was like that way into my sobriety, man. There were some ugly toes. And um, and here I am, and, and, and I'm dressed that way because I'm going to go dancing. You know, I am dying, but I'm going to go dancing. And I don't know if you guys can, you know, relate to this, but my house could be on fire and I'm vacuuming. 
You know, she's vacuuming, you know, not a big deal. And uh, that happens to me, you know, drunk and sober. You know, if I'm not spiritually fit, the same thing happens. All hell is breaking loose, but I think I'm going to go shopping. That's what I do. And um, and so here I am, and uh, I took one look around. There was a lot of white ladies with the beehives and a lot of nice jewelry. And, you know, I described what I look like, and, you know, I'm not fitting in. And I looked at the directory, and there was a meeting that following Tuesday. I thought you guys met once a week, so I waited for Tuesday. And I went to Norwalk, which is only five minutes away from Downey, okay? But I found myself a biker meeting, you know. And the biker meeting, all these guys were tatted down, you know, and I sat down, and they looked rough. And, you know, there was this guy with the treasure guy, and he said that he went to prison. Your treasurer said that. And I'm sitting there, I'm going, wow, man, these people need my help. <laughs> and I stayed, and um, <clears throat> and so here I am. Uh, they made me coffee maker right away, and I knew you poor people needed me. And I'm thinking, in my head, I'm thinking, you're keeping my brother sober, the least I can do is come make coffee for you. That's my That's my thinking. And this is why if you're alcoholic, don't worry about it, man. This, this Something happens in rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because I sat in that meeting without a drink or anything else that affected me from the neck up for nine months. No sponsor, no steps, no, I told you I read the book, but, you know, I read it in one night, so what? You know, and it, it, you know, it, it was just, and the old timers told me to keep coming back. And I love old timers in Alcoholics Anonymous. The people that are very quiet, they sit in the back, they, you know, they, they spot, they spot you, you know, and, and, um, and that's what happened to me. And I stayed dry until a, a little girl named Ann came to share at our meeting and she said she had embezzled money and that was my moment of clarity for me in AA. Stone cold sober. Um, I had embezzled $7,000, you know, and I, and I didn't remember. Everything that I share with you guys is a byproduct of going to a lot of meetings to, you know, bring about my own story because because I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous knowing who I was. You know, I'm thinking I'm better then. I'm going to help you guys out. That's what my sick head is telling me. But I did not know that I was drug dealing, that I was working in that place, that I was bloated, that I was sick, that I was shaky, that I ended up sweating and having nightmares at night. I didn't equate that with alcoholism, you see. I told my family I was having food poisoning. You know, so my sister gave me my lanta for my first 90 days. She thought I had gas and weight problems. I had the gas, but. And, um, and here I am, I'm nine, a month, nine months dry, and uh, God disguised himself as a cute guy. I don't know if you guys have him here in San Diego. But where I was, man, you know, he invites me to go play volleyball before the speaker meeting at the Lakewood speaker meeting. In, in Bellflower. So then I'm ready to go play ball, man. I've lost my blood. My little neck grew out. I'm wearing my little hot short shorts and my tube top, you know, and I'm ready to play ball. You know what I mean, Peggy Rose? Well, yeah, that's right, baby. And um, and here I go to the Thursday night meeting, you know, and I had to wait for the meeting because if you don't wait for the meeting, you look bad. I don't like looking bad. So I play ball and go to the meeting, play ball and go to the meeting. And, you know, one, one night uh, Betty Garcia came into that podium and she shared about her story. And her story was nothing like mine. I was not looking for a sponsor. I was not looking to change my life. I was not looking for God. But this lady shared from the podium that, that all she aimed in life was to be of maximum service to God and the fellows about her. And I don't know why I heard that. 
I don't know why it moved me. I don't know, you know, she said the third step prayer from the podium, the seven step prayer, and she ended her talk by reciting the poem by the touch of the master's hand. And I went to this lady and, and I gave her my number because I wasn't going to call her, you know. And, you know, God bless her heart, Betty called me the next day, you know, and, and I was at her home group, the TLC, Saturday morning, and uh, and I sat next to this lady thinking that she was going to rub off her relationship with this higher power, and, she, you know, she gave me a commitment of literature. I said, Betty, this is Torrance. I live in Downey. It's too far, 20 minutes. It's too far to go to a meeting, you know, and, and uh, she says, honey, you're silly, and she giggled and took off and gave me the keys to the locker, and I am so grateful that I am that I was so naive that I did not walk off with the key and not come back, that I did not leave the keys, you know, in, the, in that Alano club and said, you know, here's the keys to the locker. I came back and I was the literature person for the following two years, you know, and the second meeting she goes, so, you know, have you taken a four step? I says, what's that? And this lady started investing time in reading to me and this lady would read out loud to me and she would repeat things like selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of all your troubles and she would stare at me for 30 seconds. <laughs> Newcomer man, I sat there and I'm thinking, what the hell is she doing, you know? This lady must think I can't read. I mean, why is she like, you know, I had no clue, man, no clue whatsoever. And, you know, she was patient with me and she read every week and I started taking a four step and she told me to give her my resentments, my fear, my sex and all my secrets. And, you know, she had me at the secret part because it wasn't the money that I had embezzled that made me feel like a cockroach. It was the little nickel and dime things that I thought in my head that I thought were real that kept me really small around you. It was the time when I was 14 years old old and I'm on Pequon, Vermont after class and all my classmates are around and a group of cholas wanted to jump me and they asked me to kneel before them. Otherwise they were going to jump me. And I wish that my story would be one that I ran away, that I called somebody, that I let them kick my butt. But no, I knelt before them and in kneeling before them I gave away another chunk of my soul. And that was a secret. That was a secret. To me, I never told a soul I was so ashamed, you know, and, and things like trying to commit suicide at the age of 10, you know, growing up in a family where not everybody was nice to little people there, you know, all of these secrets that I had to give away, and, and because of that, I believe that I was freed, you know, and, and uh, she told me what to do with the six and seven step, and I came back the following Saturday, and she made a list, you know, and I felt like I was going to walk on water, you know, because I gave her all of my stuff, you know, and, and uh, she says, we got to make amends now, you know, so I go, what? You know, and and uh, anyway, she wanted me to go pay that guy that I stole $7,000 from. I'm not going, this cra- this lady's crazy, you know. I ain't going to, you know, pay $7,000. You know, I'm poor. I'm driving a car that smokes and farts at every corner. And you you people gave me a, a panel in Skid Row that I had for 11 years of my sobriety. And, you know, she wants me to go pay. You know, you're crazy. And so I started checking her decisions, you know, with the other members and Downey. You know, it's like, can you believe, you know. And, and thank God that I had nobody in my life that told me you don't have to do what you're supposed said, you know, thank God, because my life would be different. I ended up making an appointment, and it sounds very quick and very nice here from the podium, but I can assure you that I was scared to death, that I would go to jail at two years of sobriety, and I had my sister backing me up, and my sponsor backing me up, and I went up to this guy, and I had $350 down payment and a payment plan, and, you know, I told him what I had done, and I knew the amount because I filed taxes 
$7,000. And, you know, he looked at me and he was disappointed. I was in tears and I take out the cash. He goes, what are you doing? I says, well, these people are telling me that if I don't pay up, I'm going to go to, uh, I'm going to get drunk. And by this time, I know here that I don't ever want to pick up a drink again. And so he lo- he looks at me and he goes, no, Rosie, I can't take your money. You out of anybody know how many times my kids, my own kids have broken into my own home and they've never sat me down to tell me the truth. You out of anybody know how many times my wife have been missing in action and she's never come back to tell me the truth. If you don't mind, I would like to take a big book for my wife and you and I can work something out. And I know that it doesn't mean anything to you guys here tonight, you know, 19 years later, but I can tell you that I was able to go back to the same company, same building, same office, same computer to close out his books for him. And we worked something out that I was able to work for him the following couple of years, you know. And and actions like that is what keep me in good stead in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not so that I did it 19 years ago, because I can tell you that I'm not far away from being perfect. I was going to school and college because you people thought that I should go to college. I went back to college. I'm taking an ethics midterm exam, and uh, I was getting a B because I'm a half measures. I'm not always, you know, to the full potential. And so I'm getting a B and I'm taking a midterm and I forget a theory. And I intuitively copied a theory, you know, and I turned in my midterm and I realized I cheated in my midterms of ethics. (laughs) It's a Monday night because I'm going to my home group and, and, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, I just cheated, you know, and, and uh, don't tell anybody. You didn't get caught. Come on, don't be a wimp. It's just, you know, a, a little cheat. What's going to happen, you know? And I ended up telling my husband. He promptly snitched me off with his sponsor, and they started laughing, you know, and and it was awful. I, fe- I felt awful, and I had to go tell my sponsor, and she's like, what are we going to do? And, and I said, well, I think I need to face up, you know, and I was meeting with my professor the following couple of days, and I told him what I had done. I said, you know, I'm so embarrassed, and I'm so ashamed, but... I cheated this past Monday on the midterm, and he's looking at me like I got two heads. He's he's like, this has never happened to me before, you know. And he's like, but but I'm really glad that my class is helping you out. I said, yes, sir, yes, sir, and I didn't I didn't have to fail the class. He gave me a different theory to go to the library and take it again, you know, and he let me take my books with me. And I used to tell you guys, he didn't know who he was dealing with because he let me take my backpack with me, but my sponsor corrected that. She says, no, honey, I am willing to bet that you will never do that again. You know, and this is this is trial and error, man. I fall down, I get up, fall down, get up, and this is why we have 10, 11, and 12. And another big amends that I made that it turned out really good is I, I flew to Florida to make amends to a niece that I was very abusive to when she was a child, and she did not take my amends. She hated me. She's like, I don't care that you're there, you know, go back. And, you know, every year that I take a cake in Alcoholics Anonymous, I always send a letter out, you know, to all of my family and friends, letting them know what happened the year before. And, you know, I would send these letters to her, and sometimes I wouldn't have her address. And sometimes she would send me, uh, you know, a, a, a hate email. I don't know what to do with that. So I would forward it to my sponsor. And, you know, thank God for my sponsor, Lucretia, because she taught me how to, you know, move past that. You know, I already, you know, try to clean up the wreckage of my past. You know, this is not on me anymore. And I continue to send the birthday cards and the Christmas cards and all those letters every year. And I can tell you that about six years ago, she called me up and I hear her voice and I'm waiting for the hate. And she says, you know, she's calling me Anne for the first time in over 25 years. And she says, I wanted to let you know that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous with nine months. And I'm calling to make my amends to you. And I would have missed it all because I don't work through anything, you guys. I don't know. You send me a hate email, man. I send you a virus. That's how I work. (laughs) 
I don't know how to like, you know, sit it out and wait it out and work it out. And, you know, I am so grateful for sponsorship here because I would have missed it all. I didn't get to tell you about my mom and about the deaths that I've had in sobriety, but I'm going to tell you about a secret that I know about staying sober with anything that happens in your life. And then I'm going to sit down. Uh, the direction I was given when I lost people for the first time in my sobriety, because I thought that with the grief, I was going to die. My, my heart was aching so bad. And the one direction that I took on was you do whatever it's on the calendar. So if you have committed meetings, three, four, five meetings a week, and you have commitments of speaking somewhere or being of service somewhere and picking up the phone and calling your sponsor and sponsoring the women, if you continue to do that, and take your seat, everything is going to pass. I did not believe that 10 years ago, 8 years ago, 9 years ago. I can tell you that 6 years ago, it's been my experience to now, that that works when everything else fails. You know, just coming in and taking your seat. I'm going to continue to keep coming back, and I hope you do too. Thank you very much for having me.